If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improved jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I was about 17 years old and my friend Tony Sanderball was the one who had seen the Bigfoot. I would have never believed him if it were not for the one fact that he went straight home to his uncle who sat in a tree all night with a gun in hopes of shooting the Bigfoot for the bounty. Tony's uncle was older than us, high school kids, and was known to be quite the badass, so I would believe Tony saw Bigfoot before I would believe he would trick his uncle into sitting in a tree all night. We used to hang out at the creek quite a bit, as we liked to pack guns with us at the time, and we liked to shoot. Being out in the woods gave us the freedom we wanted at that time. I do not quite remember why or exactly who, but I believe it was Brian O'Donnell and Tony Sandoval who went up the road a bit to get some pot. I believe they took a motorbike, and one was on back, while the other drove. Well, within minutes, they were back, and they both seemed very shook up shot, and they'd seen a Bigfoot. Oh, my God, they are real, Brian kept shouting. I told them they were full of shit, and probably saw a bear. Brian then said to me, Wayne, do you honestly think we would go get Tony's uncle to sit in a tree all night over a bear? Still, I was hesitant to believe it, until I saw what took place next. 
The two boys got right to business. I mean, they showed up on the bike, shook up, and told us about it, and instantly split right over to Tony's uncle. They all showed up about twenty minutes later, or as instantly as they could get from one place to the next. That day, I did not go over to the place where they had seen it, but when they came back after having gone there with their uncle, they told me they found a hornet hive broken into and a stick was found with teeth marks on it. Brian told me he believed the Bigfoot used the stick to dig something out of the hornet hive that he ate off the end of this stick. We found footprints, and we all came to the conclusion that they, Bigfoot, had to come down to get water due to the drought. If you look at records for the year, I'll bet there was quite the drought in 94. I just remember it being a very hot summer, and I remember that summer a pond in Sunny Valley was almost dry. This pond had never dried up before, so I would say this year was a hot one. I also know to this day both kids stick to the story that they know what they saw was not a bear. I myself know for a fact that whatever they saw was not a person in a suite, just because of the place and time. I also feel like these two believed what they were telling me, even if I myself did not. This would have been at the beginning of El Nino. Not sure on spelling anyway, the cycle is going again soon, so perhaps we can use this to our advantage. I will say this. I believe the boys saw Bigfoot, and I believe they were correct on their reason for it having to come down so low. I think we can almost predict when they will have to come again. And that being said, perhaps we should set up a venture. I've been driving trucks for as long as I can remember, hauling cargo across the country's vast highways. Over the years, I've heard countless stories from fellow truckers about strange occurrences on certain roads, but I've always dismissed them as mere superstitions. That was until the night I found myself on the infamous highway of shadows. The sun had already set, and darkness wrapped its cloak around the desolate highway as I approached the entrance to the dreaded road. Fellow truckers had warned me about its dark reputation, a stretch of asphalt with eerie encounters and unexplainable phenomena. Still, I shrugged off their stories, telling myself that they were merely trying to spook the rookie and me. As I entered the highway, a chill crept down my spine, but I shook it off, attributing it to the cool night air. However, it wasn't long before the first strange event unfolded. My jeeps, a reliable companion on my journeys, suddenly went haywire, displaying an endless loop of recalculating routes. I tried restarting it, but the device remained unresponsive. Losing my GPs wasn't much of a concern. After all, I knew the route by heart, but soon my communication with the outside world vanished too. My radio was nothing but static, and calls to the trucking company went unanswered. It was as if the highway had swallowed me whole, cutting me off from the rest of the world. As I drove on, my unease grew, and I started to notice strange figures appearing in my rearview mirror. Each time I glanced back, they vanished into thin air. At first I dismissed them as tricks of the imagination, attributing them to the fatigue of long hours on the road, but the night had more in store for me. A thick fog rolled in, swallowing the road and obscuring my view. The fog was so dense that it was impossible to see beyond a few feet ahead. My heart pounded in my chest as I navigated cautiously, relying solely on the dim glow of my headlights. In the fog, I saw glimpses of other truckers who had met unfortunate fates on the same road. Spectral apparitions of their weary faces and fading smiles haunted me. Their voices echoed in my mind, warning me to turn back while I still had a chance. 
My skepticism was replaced with terror as the malevolent force that haunted the highway of shadows became more apparent. The spirits of the fallen truckers, trapped in eternal unrest, appeared before me, their eyes filled with anguish and desperation. They pleaded with me to leave to escape before it was too late. With each passing moment, I felt the malevolence closing in, a dark and powerful presence that seemed to envelop the very air around me. I knew I had to confront it, to find a way to break free from its grasp. The past of this road had secrets buried deep within its asphalt, and those secrets held the key to understanding the malevolent force that now threatened my life. Driven by fear and curiosity, I delved into the highway's dark history, researching old newspaper archives and talking to locals who knew the road's darkest tales. I learned of a tragic accident that occurred decades ago, claiming the lives of innocent truckers. Their souls, never finding peace, had become forever tied to this road, seeking vengeance on those who dared to venture into their domain. The connection between the malevolent entity and me slowly unveiled itself. I discovered that one of the fallen truckers shared my family name, revealing a chilling connection to my past that I had never known. As the truth unfolded, I realized that I was destined to confront this malevolent force, that my journey on the highway of shadows was no coincidence, but a haunting fate I could not escape. Armed with newfound knowledge and an unyielding determination, I prepared to face the malevolent entity head. On, the fog thickened around me as I stood on the highway waiting for its arrival. It approached like a swirling darkness, suffocating the night air with its malevolence. In that moment, I felt the weight of the spirit's sorrow and the pain of the tragic past that had befallen this cursed highway. But I also felt a glimmer of hope, the hope that I could somehow break the cycle and free these lost souls from their eternal torment. With a surge of courage, I confronted the malevolent force, challenging it with the strength of my will and the love I had for my own family. As the battle of spirits and emotions raged, I unearthed the truth of the past and offered solace to the souls who had been seeking closure for so long. In that pivotal moment, the highway seemed to tremble with the release of pent-up energy, and the fog began to dissipate, unveiling a clear night sky. The spirits of the fallen truckers gradually faded away, leaving behind a sense of peace that had been absent on this road for far too long. As I stood there, feeling the weight lift from my shoulders, I knew that I had broken the malevolent entity's grip on the highway of shadows. The road had finally found its peace, and so had I. From that night on, I vowed never to dismiss the stories of the road again. The highway of shadows had taught me a lesson in humility and respect for the unknown. My journey as a trucker continued, but now I carried with me the knowledge that there are forces in this world beyond our understanding, and some roads hold secrets best left undisturbed. The story I'm about to tell doesn't involve the wilderness or any backcountry, yet it's one of the creepiest experiences I've ever had. It happened one bright morning when I was rudely awakened from sleep by peculiar sounds resonating from above my head. As I groggily transitioned from the realm of dreams to reality, the noises began to coalesce into a pattern that resembled the heavy thud of adult footsteps in the attic. The audible thuds were so distinct that I initially thought it was the landlord carrying out some maintenance work, or perhaps he'd hired someone to do it. As I shook off the last vestiges of sleep, the sound of the footsteps became more distinct, their rhythm unmistakable. The only issue was the only entrance to the attic was through my room, and my bedroom door was locked. 
My heart pounded in my chest as I slowly became fully awake, and then I heard it again. The thud was directly above me now, as if the intruder had missed a step on a beam. I held my breath, bracing for a body to come crashing through the ceiling, but the crash never came. Instead, a complete and utter silence descended, leaving me in a state of unnerving anticipation. Feeling somewhat shaken, I decided to leave the room and inspect the house from the outside. This was a two-story house, situated in a well-populated, respectable neighborhood. I examined the roof and the small vent windows, but everything seemed perfectly normal. The most baffling part was the fact that the only entrance to the attic was in my room. My mind raced to find a logical explanation. Could it have been tree branches falling and rolling off the roof? But the noise I heard was directly above the ceiling, not on the roof. It was as if someone was deliberately treading on the beams until they slipped, or something else. I was armed with my pistol, and I even contacted the landlord, who promptly came over. Together, we opened the attic and climbed up with a flashlight. To our surprise, there was absolutely nothing. The attic was completely empty. What could possibly make such a hefty noise akin to a full-grown man taking large, deliberate steps on the beams? The incident left me baffled, and to this day I've been unable to explain it. Months later, I encountered a seasoned hunter from the neighborhood, a man who'd spent his life trekking and understanding creatures of the wild. When I shared my experience, his face turned a shade paler. He told me tales of an unknown creature, a being that could climb walls and vanish without a trace, a creature that had been heard but never seen. Could that have been my uninvited guest? To this day, I can't explain it, but the mystery of the unknown creature in my attic continues to haunt me. I'm a police officer, and I was always a skeptic. So it was January of 2001 when I had an encounter that sent chills down my spine. I came face to face with a tall being, a terrifying figure that brought to mind images of Nosferatu. This particular incident remains one of the scariest experiences I've ever had, and it's an unsolved mystery that continues to haunt me till this day. It was around 2.30 in the morning, and I was driving down a road in Franklin County, Texas. I had just passed under a dimly lit streetlight, the faint light barely sufficient to illuminate my surroundings. That's when I noticed something. There was some movement on the right side of the road, near the cow pass, that crisscrossed the area. It seemed like something large had hurriedly crossed my path. Slowing down to roughly 45 miles per hour, I decided to let whatever it was pass me if it intended to cross the road again. But then, an unimaginable sight unfolded before my eyes. What seemed to be a man traveling on all fours abruptly leaped up from the ground and soared over my car. The creature I saw was unlike anything I'd ever encountered. It stood well over eight feet tall, its skin a sickly pale white. The creature's face was distorted, its skin carrying a ghastly glow, its long claws a terrifying sight. Its eyes were a strange mix of yellow and green, its face pronounced with sharp features. Bald with sharp pointy ears, its whitish, deathly bluish skin was reminiscent of Nosferatu, and the creature's face bore an eerie similarity to a vampire bat. Could this have been some sort of ancient creature, akin to a vampire or demon? Is it prowling these parts, preying on cows, or perhaps it's the mysterious chupacabra, known for draining the blood of livestock animals? The questions abound, but answers remain elusive. 
I work in the outdoor field and lead trips regularly. I once led a trip to the top of Mount Stringer in North Carolina. It's a tough climb to get to the top and about six miles from the nearest road. I was leading a group of eight middle school kids and had one co-instructor. We were camping out on top of the mountain and it was a beautiful night with a full moon. The kids and the other co-instructor went to bed in their tents. I chose to spend the night in a hammock that night. I was really into a book I was reading, so I stayed up and read until about 10.30 p.m. I turned my headlamp off to settle in for the night. Everything around me was rather bright from the moon and from the position I was in. I could see down the trail we had hiked to get to the top. I laid there enjoying the scenery and noticed something moving on the trail. Bears are common in the area, so I perked up. As it got closer, I could tell it was a person. We were in the middle of nowhere, and there was someone hiking up the trail with no headlamp or any gear. I was just frozen, watching this person move closer to our camp. They arrived at the top of the mountain, where we were, and just stopped. I watched as what appeared to be a man surveyed our camp. I really could only see the outline of him. He stood there for what seemed like thirty minutes, but may have been ten. He then turned, sat down under a tree, facing our camp. He was sitting up in a way that I knew he wasn't trying to sleep. He just sat there staring at our camp. I had no idea what to do. I decided to wait it out. I waited, just staring at the man while he stared at my camp. This went on until about 3.30 a.m. Then he stood up, took a moment to survey my camp a few minutes longer, and then went down the trail he came up on. I, to this day, have no idea what that was all about, but it freaked me out. I was paranoid that we were being followed for the rest of the trip. Working the night shift has a way of skewing your perception of time. Before you know it, the world is celebrating Christmas and you're just finishing up work at 1 a.m. That's exactly where I found myself one Christmas morning about to embark on a six-hour drive north to spend the holiday with my parents. This wasn't a bustling cityscape. This was the rural South Island of New Zealand, a landscape punctuated by small towns and vast stretches of untouched nature. It was the kind of place where traffic was sparse on a regular day, let alone at 1 a.m. on Christmas morning. Throughout my drive, I passed only a handful of cars, fellow night owls making their own solitary journeys. About halfway through my trip, I reached a stretch of road that was truly isolated. The mountains seemed to reach out and touch the sea, with a narrow road carved into the cliffside. On one side, the towering cliffs rose into darkness. On the other, the roaring sea crashed against the rocky shore, its ebb and flow a steady soundtrack to my journey. It was on this remote road, some twenty kilometers from the nearest town, that my headlights illuminated an unusual sight. A man walking in the middle of nowhere, the pitch, black night, the eerie sound of the waves, and the intermittent sea fog created an almost otherworldly backdrop to this lone figure. What made the scene even stranger was what he was carrying. A cheap blow-up doll slung over his shoulder. There were no houses in sight, and given the steep mountains and the proximity of the sea, it was clear there were no suitable places for a dwelling until I reached the next town. This man was truly in the middle of nowhere, and his presence was inexplicably unsettling. Friends have since asked me if I stopped to see if he needed help, suggesting he might have been left behind by someone. But in the face of that bizarre spectacle, under the vast expanse of the starry sky, with the relentless sea as my only companion, there was no way I was stopping. 
I drove on, the image of the man and his blow-up doll growing smaller in my rearview mirror. Even now, the memory lingers. A lone figure in the darkness, a curious anomaly against the rugged beauty of rural New Zealand. I still don't know who he was, or why he was there. All I know is that six, our drive was the longest I've ever experienced, and I'll never forget that Christmas morning. I was living in one of the cabins with my husband and two younger children. We had finished dinner, and they were in the living room. It was getting later, but was still pretty light out, as it had been sunny that day. I started to walk from the kitchen to the living room, and a movement caught my eye straight ahead, through the bathroom window. I stood stock still in disbelief as a Sasquatch walked up the dirt road, heading south from our cabin. With huge, long strides, I could see his back only. I sensed it was a male, though I couldn't say why. He seemed to be aware of me watching him, but wasn't worried. He was about seven feet tall, with reddish-brown hair about two feet long. He had very long arms and legs, and walked very confidently and controlled-looking. He walked behind a large tree at the edge of the road and just disappeared. I kept waiting for him to show up on the other side of the tree, but he just seemed to vanish. I wasn't frightened, as he didn't seem malevolent or animalistic. Our dog was chained up outside the window, and she was barking and lunging at the end of her chain, watching him. He didn't seem at all phased by the dog. I was so engrossed watching him that I didn't think to say anything out loud until he disappeared. Then I walked into the living room in a daze and told my husband I just saw a Bigfoot walk up the road. I went out a few minutes later and looked at the road by the tree, but the ground was too dry and packed for any tracks to show. Two of my friends and I, all three early twenties females, were hiking around Yellowstone. This day was really busy at the park, and we ended up driving around until we could find a parking lot that wasn't as busy. We found one that was off the beaten path a bit, and there were no cars in the parking lot. We got out of the car, looked around, grabbed our gear, and headed out. One of my friends, Carter or Sarah, and I were taking a photo as well. The other friend, Sylvia, started walking ahead of us. So we finished taking photos, and we go to start trying to catch up to the two, Sylvia. And as we're trying to catch up, and I look across a little opening, and I see a man in a bright blue rain jacket. I thought that was odd, and thought maybe another trail connects to this one. But I tap Sarah and say there's another person on the trail. But by the time she looked, the person in the bright blue jacket was gone. Sylvia, at this point, was at the tree line waiting for us before she went into the wooded part. Finally, all three of us are together, and we start walking in the wooded part, and it's very quiet nothing but nature sounds, and I start to get this feeling like we're being watched. We were now where I would have saw the man in the blue jacket. We finally exit the wooded park, and we come to a big opening that's sort of muddy and swampy. I start going ahead because I just want to get out of the wood, and I notice as I'm going to head on the boardwalk, there's no footprints. The area was really muddy, so there's no way that anybody could have crossed this boardwalk and not left either footprints in the mud or wet, muddy footprints on the boardwalk, so I stopped and I looked behind me and I see my friends still standing at the opening of the wooded area, and they were motioning me to go back to them. So I turned around and I meet them at the opening of the wooded area. Sylvia leaned in and said that soon as we got to the opening of the wood area, she started to get a feeling that she was being watched. I asked Sarah if she had told Sylvia about the man in the blue jacket, and she said no. 
At this point, the fact that I had the feeling of being watched in the wooded area and Sylvia, who had no idea about the man in the blue jacket, was feeling watched, and the no footprints on the boardwalk, we were all very creeped out. We then heard a car pull up in the parking lot, as we still weren't very far from the parking lot, and we hear doors open, and we hear kids laughing and slamming doors, and Mom and Dad tell them to get their water and all of that. We decided right then and there that if we could hear people in the parking lot, we should be able to hear the man in the blue jacket walking and or see him. The three of us hauled ass back to the car where we looked, and once again it was just us and that new family that i just pulled up. As we were leaving, Sarah told the family what had happened to us. The mom and dad decided not to take their kids in there, and we all left that parking lot. To this day, I couldn't tell you what that hike was called or if anything had happened there at the park. But all I know is that I should have trusted my gut when we are in the wooded area, and I think the fact that my friend got the same feeling of being watched. That was a second chance to turn around. I used to live in northern Wisconsin, a ways north of Minocqua. Our house was against a mostly endless chunk of forest, and I used to go walking all day with my dog, some lunch, a compass, and a point twenty-two just to plink away at squirrels or whatever varmint. One fine day I had ranged particularly far into a mossy low area with soggy ground. The forest had that eerie stillness that seems unnatural, that humans don't like. I came out into a clearing with a slightly raised area and saw a goddamn shanty town. It was this cobbled-together town. Ah, shit you not. Had a little main street and maybe seven, ten buildings. One of them was even two-story. I stayed still for a minute, and my dog knew to do the same, and just watched. I decided it was actually a nice place. The clearing let a little sunlight in. The shanties were decorated with those leftover carpet squares. I could see Christmas lights strung up probably for light, not festive purposes. Nothing moved, no sounds. So I took a few steps in. Gun in hand, not on shoulder. I leaned in the doorway to the first shack. It was well lit via some windows, and it was clearly an apartment. Some candles and a bunch of shitty magazines. It had a bed, a makeshift bookshelf, and a makeshift kitchenette. There was a bit of uneaten food that had not yet rotted on the bookshelf. That last one really caught my attention. I usually go quietly in the woods, but I hadn't been approaching with stealth in mind. I looked at my dog, saw a ridge of hair on his back. At this point I felt very foolish and conspicuous. Decided it was time to GTFO. My twenty-two wasn't going to stop anyone, and it was, of course, a rifle, poor for close quarters against multiple moving targets, so me and the pooch noped the F out of there. After we were about five hundred yards, we jogged for about thirty minutes just to gain distance. We made sure to cross a few streams and alter course a few times. Later in life, I did a mission to go back there. This time I approached with stealth in mind, no dog and a different gun. No shantytown, all gone but I could still clearly see signs of where the shacks used to be and their community fire pit. I assume they went deeper. I had just finished running some errands in town and was making my way back to my secluded cabin in the woods. The sun was setting, casting a warm orange glow over the trees as I pulled into my driveway. Little did I know that my life was about to take a terrifying turn. As I unlocked my front door, I was immediately struck by the sensation that something was off. The air inside my cabin felt heavy, as if it were charged with electricity. 
I stepped cautiously over the threshold, my eyes scanning the room for any signs of disturbance. That's when I noticed the disarray. Drawers were pulled open, and their contents were strewn about haphazardly. Before I had the chance to process what was happening, I heard a voice behind me. Don't scream. Don't call the police. I won't hurt you if you cooperate. I froze, my heart pounding in my chest. Slowly, I turned to face the intruder. To my shock, I found myself staring into the eyes of Eric Rudolph, the infamous bomber who was the subject of a nationwide manhunt. My mind raced, trying to comprehend the surreal situation I found myself in. Despite the fear coursing through my veins, I managed to keep my composure. What do you want from me? I asked, my voice trembling slightly. Rudolph's expression was tense, but there was an unexpected politeness in his tone as he spoke. I just need some food and self-hygiene supplies. I don't want to hurt you, but I can't let you call the police or tell anyone where I am. As I looked at him, I could see the desperation in his eyes. It was clear that he was on the run, and my remote cabin had provided the perfect hiding spot. With no idea where he might be or what he was capable of, I felt I had no choice but to comply with his demands. Over the next several hours, I provided Rudolph with the items he requested, all the while trying to keep my fear at bay. He maintained his polite demeanor throughout our interactions, an unsettling juxtaposition to the knowledge of the terror he had inflicted upon innocent people. Finally, as the night wore on, Rudolph gathered his supplies and prepared to leave my cabin. Thank you for your help, he said, his voice calm and even. I'm sorry for the inconvenience. Remember, don't call the police. With that, he vanished into the night, leaving me shaken and disoriented. I live near Muskegon, Michigan, close to the Lake Michigan shoreline. Over the past two years, several neighbors and ourselves have witnessed many weird lights above the lake. During the last week of April, there were several strings of red and white lights moving north above the lake. I noticed the lights twice on different nights. The man across the street contacted a UFO group. I don't know the name of the group. He told my son that he had also seen unusual people in his backyard from his bedroom window late one night. When he went out to confront them, they were gone. This happened just two days after he filed a UFO report online. On two consecutive nights, my son and I saw spotlights shining from the shore of the lake. It was a field, a narrow road, and a berm between our house and the lake. It looked like the spotlights may have been mounted on vehicles. On both nights, this occurred around 11 p.m. and lasted for only a few minutes. A few days later, May 4th, about 2 p.m., I was out in the backyard working in my garden. A man, dressed in black military garb, had entered through my back gate and walked towards me. I stopped what I was doing and waited for him to say something. He wore glasses that were tinted yellow, which stood out because everything else on him was black. He also wore a plain black cap. There was no insignia. When got close, he looked directly at me without expression and asked if I had noticed lights over the lake. I explained what we had seen and any other information I thought would help. He wrote everything down in a small notebook, rarely saying a word other than anything else. When I finished, he asked if I had reported the sightings. I told him the man across the street said he contacted a UFO group, then asked, But did you contact anyone? I said no. <laughs> then I asked him what group he was with. He just looked at me and said, Thank you for cooperating. That was very weird because... I felt that there was something not right about this man. I guess it was intuition, but I was creeped out. 
On Saturday, May 9th, around 10.30 p.m., there were more lights coming from the lake shoreline. This time I decided to walk over and see what was going on. My son, who was 17, came with me. He was just as curious as me. We walked through the yard, across the field, then over the berm to the shoreline. There were five black Land Rover, like vehicles about 100 yards south along the shoreline. There were also a dozen or more men in black garb moving about. As soon as one of these men noticed us, he shouted, There! and came running towards us. He had a three-feet-long light-colored baton with a yellow light on the end. Two other men came running towards us as well. The man with the baton yelled, You must leave at once. This is a national security operation. My son asked who they were, but never received an answer to that question. One of the other men, who I believe was a superior, said, You must leave the area immediately. Go back to your home. A representative will contact you in a day or two. We agreed and promptly left and went home. I have not been contacted by anyone since that night. My son and I went back to the shoreline and looked around hoping that we could find something that could help us understand what had happened. There was nothing. I believe that they may have discovered something of importance just by the way they reacted to us. Is there any way of finding out who these guys were and what they were doing? During my time as captain of the Standard Oil Company's steamer Dakota, I had an incredible experience that I will never forget. It was July 11, and we were sailing back from Manila when my mate called my attention to what he thought was a whale on our port bow. As we approached within about 100 feet of the creature, it became clear that this was no ordinary whale. In fact, it hardly resembled a whale at all upon closer inspection. This massive creature measured 40 feet long and 10 feet wide with a cavernous mouth and eyes as large as locomotive headlights. As I stood on the bridge, I watched the creature intently, captivated by its fierce yet kind gaze. Just as we came almost alongside, I recall the creature turned its head toward the ship, revealing the most ferocious face I had ever seen. The mouth seemed like the entrance to a railroad tunnel, and despite the intimidating appearance, there was a gentle look in its eyes. As we continued to observe the creature, it suddenly rolled its eyes and disappeared beneath the water's surface. Unlike a whale, which would have dove headfirst and waved goodbye with its tail, we never saw this mysterious creature's tail at all. To this day, I am not sure if it was bidding us farewell or inviting us to join it on some adventure below the surface. Having spent many years at sea, I had never encountered a creature quite like this one. In the ship's log, we recorded the encounter at latitude 45.30 north, longitude 152 west, as evidence of our extraordinary brush with this enigmatic creature of the deep. I'm not sure if I am hyper-aware or paranoid, but I've had several weird things happen recently, and hearing many others with similar stories, too. First, several months ago, I was in a shopping center, and a man walking towards me on the sidewalk said, Hey, you dropped something. I looked him in the eye, but kept walking. I knew I hadn't dropped anything. About 30 minutes later, I went downtown, a few-minute drive from where I was before, and walking in a busy area with a lot of restaurants. Another man said did the exact same thing, only this time he was aggressive and rude yelling at me for not giving him a response. The second weird encounter was while walking my dog on a grass area behind my apartment. The city owns the land, however. I've never seen people walk around there. As I was walking out of a little wooded area there, my dog abruptly turns around and barks at a man. 
He acted very surprised when I turned around, and my initial thought was that he was following me. He asked me if I had seen a cat and then laughed. I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt that he was nervous, but I felt weird for days after. Who laughs when they're missing their pet, though, and the last encounter was in my office space I rent? I have neighbors in the building, and specifically a new one, interacted with me. He came to my door and knocked and started to tell me about himself. He told me he doesn't have friends in the office building. Neither do I, because I'm only there for work. Our conversation was pleasant, but then he said, I asked, Name I can't remember. Which car you drive? I never get to see you here and wondered. He asked for my contact for my business, and I was reluctant between giving my email or phone number. He acted so frustrated and said, Just give me one or give me a card. Honestly, I was nervous and just blurted it out, in hopes I'd never interact with him again. When I didn't respond to a message from him a few days later, he came back to my office while I was with a client. He slipped notes through the door, and I decided to tell him politely I was too busy and not accepting new clients. Friends I've talked to say to me to trust my gut and keep my distance. I don't leave my office without walking with someone or calling someone now. I'm just tired of being on edge. The war-torn village in Ukraine lay in ruins, its once vibrant streets now haunted by the echoes of destruction. Our Navy SEAL team, under the leadership of Mark, ventured into this desolate landscape on a covert mission to gather crucial intel in the aftermath of the devastating conflict with Russian forces. Mark, an unconventional leader with a knack for humor and occasional gambling, provided a unique dynamic to our team. As we scoured the area, inspecting the bodies of fallen soldiers and civilians, a sense of eerie anticipation hung in the air. It was then that we unwittingly stumbled upon an entrance leading to a hidden underground lair. Curiosity mingled with caution as we descended into the depths, our senses alert to any potential threats. What awaited us in that subterranean chamber defied all reason and comprehension. A monstrous cryptid, a grotesque fusion of a giant snake, a ferocious werewolf and adorned with menacing antler horns emerged from the shadows. The creature's mere presence exuded an aura of malevolence, its eyes gleaming with primal hunger. A battle of survival ensued as our training and instincts kicked in. We fought with valor and determination, exploiting every weakness we could find. Through a combination of strategic flanking, blinding the creature, and relentless firepower, we managed to bring the beast to its knees. However, victory proved to be short-lived as our celebrations were cut short. We quickly realized that we had been surrounded by Russian forces who had been lying in wait for us. Outnumbered and outgunned, we were swiftly captured and taken into captivity. In the dark confines of our prison cells, we grappled with a mix of frustration, anger, and fear. Questions swirled in our minds about the nature of the cryptid we had encountered, and how it came to be in that hidden lair. Our priority now shifted from survival against the creature to finding a way to escape our captors and ensure the safety of our team. Days turned into weeks as we endured the harsh realities of captivity. We devised plans using our training and resourcefulness to exploit any weaknesses in our captors' defenses. Finally, an opportunity presented itself, and with calculated presentation, we launched our escape. Under the cover of darkness, we fought our way to freedom, using the skills honed through years of training. Our camaraderie and unwavering determination propelled us forward, overcoming obstacles and evading pursuit. 
With each passing mile, we drew closer to reaching safety and delivering our vital findings to the NATO base in Germany. As we regrouped at the base, battered but triumphant, we reported our encounters with the cryptid and the harrowing ordeal of our capture. A revelation sparked concern among NATO forces, igniting discussions about the true extent of the Russian threat. Our mission was far from over. We had survived the clutches of both monstrous creature and our captors, and now our duty called us to continue the fight. With renewed resolve, we prepared ourselves for the next phase, knowing that the secrets we held could have far-reaching implications for the conflict in Ukraine and the stability of the region. This is a true story. About two years ago, my boyfriend at the time, and I decided to go on a hike right before the sunset, which, yes, sounds dumb, but it's something we had done multiple times before with no issues. There was something about the eeriness of the woods at night that I liked, not so much my boyfriend thought. To start our hike, we had to go through really tall plants and bushes. We were practically in the middle of nowhere. About a mile into the hike, we came across some abandoned structures and sat down to take a breather. I'm not sure exactly what my BF said to make me do this, but as a joke, I whistled and said, See nothing whistled back. We're alone. Not even 20 seconds after saying that, we heard a whistle. It was a bit of ways from us, but still too close for our liking. We immediately started booking it in the opposite direction of the whistle and didn't look back. After running for as long as we could, we realized we were lost. We wandered around. For about ten minutes before we stumbled across some train tracks that led back into town about a mile or two down the way, it's important to note that these tracks had thick woods lining both sides. The right side is where we came from. At this point, we were walking as we had run out of energy and felt safe. We were wrong to assume that we were safe. We got to the point where we could see the lights from town, maybe a quarter to half a mile away, down the tracks a little bit. We could very faintly see the outline of what looked to be a deer coming out of the right side of the woods. It stopped in the middle of the tracks and just stood there. I had attempted to shine my flashlight. Nope, this flashlight was pretty dim. It was a random one found in the back of the junk drawer. On it, but as soon as I lifted my light up, it fled. Now I say fled because ran would not be an accurate way to describe the way it moved. The best way I can describe it is that it looked like it had four broken legs and its body was very low to the ground, yet it had unbelievable speed. It almost looked like a, a bent and twisted monster out of a horror movie. I shined my light into the woods to the left of us as that's where it had ran. And when I did, I saw two glowing eyes that looked to be at least ten feet in the air. My boyfriend said, What is that? in a very concerned tone. I told him, I don't know. Don't look at it. Just run. We ran. And ran until eventually we reached town and walked back home. This happened about two years ago, and I've tried to come up with logical explanation after explanation of what I saw that night, and still to this day I can never find a solid logical answer other than it being something paranormal. I refused to believe what I had seen for a long time, but I know what I saw, and I know I'm not crazy as there was another person that witnessed the same thing as me. My Beth never spoke of it again and refused to speak about it when I would talk about it. I never went hiking at night after that day. I remember opening my eyes and being in a very dark forest. I had nothing but a flashlight and was walking in a set direction that I had no explicable reason for doing so. 
I looked around and noticed there were other people very close by to me with flashlights and were also walking in the direction I was, from what I could infer. We seemed to be a search party of some sort. There were three other people besides me, an average-looking couple that was composed of a man and a woman, and a grizzled-looking veteran man who stayed behind us. I assumed this was to make sure we didn't fall behind. This man reminded me a lot of William Bill Overbeck from the L4D video game. He struck me as the kind of person who was experienced and knowledgeable. Anyway, as we walked for a bit, I suddenly heard the veteran man yell out in horror from behind me. I turned around along with the couple, only to realize he was gone. The couple and I ran. I ran because in my head I was thinking, if the most experienced person just got taken by something, what the F was I going to be able to do? As I ran, I heard the woman scream behind me. Tears were forming in my eyes. I didn't even look back this time. I just heard the man yell and run back after her, only to hear him scream shortly afterward. I was terrified, remembering it clearly, tears in my eyes and seeing my own flashlight bob up and down as I tried to haul ass through this endless pitch. Black forest. Eventually nothing happened. I felt as if I was running for a while. Ah, was sick of it. Whatever this thing was, it was behind me. I stopped in my tracks and took a deep breath. I turned around and shone my flashlight forwards, and there it was. This thing looked horrid, gangly, and pale gray. It had very long and thin arms. The worst part of this thing was its face. It had these empty pits for eyes, just large black holes. Same thing with its mouth, just a gaping abyss. It just stared at me before it started making these horrid sounds. It sounded to me like it was trying to breathe, but it was immensely labored or had an obstruction blocking its airway. The best way I can describe it was like Satan crossed with a pug, trying to breathe, and it was very loud too. I felt cornered, but I was sick of running. I took a stance and raised my arms. I wanted to show this thing I wasn't scared. That's when it hit me. I couldn't move. I couldn't raise my arms. And this thing knew it slowly, methodically trudged to me, making those god-awful sounds, and stopped right beside my ear. I shut my eyes tightly and opened them again. It was gone. It is important to note, when I did this, it felt like I woke up, so I was confused as to why I was in a forest. Hell, I still had my flashlight only to hear the most blood-curdling scream imaginable coming from straight in front of me, and this thing burst straight from the thicket, barreling towards me, arms outstretched towards me. Right as it was about to get me, I woke up. I was hyperventilating for some reason. I thought this thing was in my room, looming over my bed, watching me. It was only when I felt my dog beside me. I calmed down immensely and fell back asleep. I woke up the next morning, When I was a teenager in Kentucky, there was a hiking spot about 30-40 men out of town named Indian Falls. When it would rain, it would be an awesome series of waterfalls going about 150 yards in length, dropping about 200 or so feet along the way. We would park along the road that led to the trail, where there was a very long drop of around 300 feet or so. The trail led down to the waterfall, where most of the time it was very dry and polluted with large junk like a refrigerator and an old car that has been swept down with heavy rain. It was also a hangout spot that kids would leave beer cans and spray their initials on the hollowed-out recesses along the cliff walls. Though it was never occupied any time I visited, at the very bottom was a pasture. One of my friends and I hiked down to the bottom one day because he thought he might find some random growing marijuana. I knew if we found anything growing, we'd best 
stay the F away from it because growers can stake rattlesnakes close to patches or set up shotgun traps. We eventually headed in the direction of the road and found that it connected at the bottom so we didn't have to climb up the waterfall to get back to the path. As we were walking on the road back to the car and it came into view, I could see something on it that I couldn't make out. When we got closer, I could see a cloud of flies hovering over a dark shape. Finally, when I was 50 feet from the car, I could tell what it was. Someone had left the head of a deer on the hood of my car blood and tendons and everything. Mike it was in their truck, and they stopped to decapitate it and leave it on my trunk. I took it as a message to stay the hell away, and I've never been back.